So we have a couple of hours to be together between now and nine. And uh, so I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking and you can tell me what you're thinking. Uh, And maybe we can uh, help each other out. Uh, I'm thinking that... uh, um, I don't think consciousness is inside my brain. I don't think I've got it all there inside my brain. Uh, I think it's bigger than my brain. I think it's bigger than your brain. I think it's bigger than all of our brains. Somehow our brains and our whole organism manage to channel it so that we have some world that we appear to be in, that we share somehow with one another. But I don't think uh, my brain or your brain is big enough to uh, encompass the size of consciousness. And I don't think we know what it is. I don't think we know it. I think even the word consciousness is misleading as if it were something. Maybe it isn't anything. We don't even know. I have a, a nephew who's a cognitive scientist who studies the brain and I said, well, did you figure out what consciousness is yet? And he said, we haven't even figured out what questions to ask so that we might try to do that. So in other words, we're living in the middle of a big mystery and we really don't know what's going on. I don't even know if I'm sitting here now talking to you. Really and truly, I don't. It appears that way, but then before I know it, I'm not sitting here in this room talking to you anymore. I'm somewhere else, you know. How did that happen? So I think it's just a a terrible thing that um, we we have all been tyrannized and colonized into crowded into a very small and bitter world that doesn't necessarily even exist in the way we think it does. And yet we're all so convinced, right? We're so convinced that this is the world. I think that if, if you think that the, the world that we are living in now is not working well, Uh, if you think that it's uh, a flagging, failing world, it's a failure of the imagination. It's a failure of the... the, uh, We've made our hearts too small. We, We haven't imagined big enough, true enough. So, that makes me mad, you know, that we've done this. And that we've made such a mess, that we're so unfair to one another and so unloving to one another, and that we're so thoughtless, like a teenager, you know, a teenage boy who eats an orange and throws the orange peels on the floor of his room and doesn't notice he's doing it, and then three days later when they're all green and moldy, 
still doesn't notice until his mom comes in and picks it up, you know, or gets him to pick it up. I'm, I'm saying this from experience, <laughs> having had teenage sons. The whole we're all like this now in the world. We're throwing things around and not cleaning up after ourselves, making a mess, and then pretending it isn't so. This got me mad, and so that's why. I wanted to write this book about the imagination. I, want, I wanted to say that uh, that we are all much bigger than we think, each one of us. We are each one of us more mysterious than we think. The world we're living in is not the world that we think we're living in. And we really have to wake up to this if we're ever going to survive together in any way that's decent, that's worthy of our, of our humanity. So, I'm going to uh, read you the opening uh, moment of this book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll read a little bit and then talk a little bit and read a little bit and then and we'll talk together. So this, this is a story. Uh, that happened uh, during World War II. It's about the surrealist poet Robert Desnos, who was a French-Jewish poet. As you know, uh, the Nazis took over France and established a puppet government, so Desnos went underground and uh, fought in the resistance. And he was captured. And he was sent to the concentration camps. So one day, along with many other men, Desnos is crowded onto the bed of one of the trucks that transports prisoners from the barracks. They all know where they're going. Every day these trucks go out full, come back empty, and the men loaded into them, never seen again. So as they get into the truck, they're pretty somber. Nobody's looking at anybody. Nobody's talking. Each one has his own thoughts, if they could stand to think at all. And they get to their destination. And they slowly, silently uh, descend from the truck. As if... They were in some kind of bad dream. And the guards, who usually are joking and having a good time, when the truck arrives, uh, they somehow catch the mood of the prisoners and they also fall silent. So it's a very somber exercise as one after another, the men descend from the truck. But all of a sudden, the mood shifts when one of the men in line, it's Desnos, whirls around, grabs the palm, you know, the palm of the person behind him and, and bends over the guy's palm 
he's a palm reader. He's reading his palm. He's, he's telling his fortune by reading his palm. And he gets ebullient. Ah, I am so happy for you. Look at this lifeline. It goes on and on and on. You're going to live to be 90-something. I can't even, it doesn't even, I don't even see where it ends. And, and you're going to have children. You're going to be so happy. What a life you're going to have. I am so thrilled for you. This is unbelievable to me. And he's so excited about this. And the man, of course, is, what? And the other prisoners, they, 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 they look at one another. They don't know what to think. And, but their uh, immediate response is to each one put out their hand. So they're all putting out their hands. And he starts reading everybody's palm. And everyone has this kind of long lifeline and all these brilliant things. You're going to go to America even. You're going to live in California. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be wonderful. I can't imagine how this could be. Every single one is like this. And they all now go from being you know, totally despairing to being happy. And they're patting one another on the back. And they're just laughing and joking and everything. It's amazing. And the guards don't know what to think when they see this. Because, like the prisoners, they too had been living in a kind of a dream. They had also been living under a spell in which the marching of men to slaughter was a normal and acceptable everyday occurrence. But now, with this outrageous event, this sudden, convincing, out of nowhere, evocation of an alternative reality, the spell is suddenly shattered. And the guards find themselves deeply confused. The reality that they had been living in a moment before is suddenly, just suddenly, cast totally into doubt. And they're no longer sure what's real and what is not real. Maybe their better natures, long suppressed in an effort to conform to the Nazi madness that defined their world, long numb to the grief, the guilt, the horror that they must have felt but didn't allow themselves to feel. Maybe all that in them was stirred and released by Desnos' powerful commitment to this absurd, or maybe not absurd, vision. We don't really know what was going on in the minds of the guards. We don't have reports. But we do know that they were so undone by this scene in front of them that they really didn't know what to do. And it did not any longer make sense to go ahead with the daily routine, 
So not knowing what to do, they just put them back on the truck. The truck turned around and went back to the barracks. And these men were never executed. Desnos uh, was not executed. We, we know. So, there's a story for you. I wish I could tell you that Desnos does live here in California and is still alive in his 90s, but actually, no, he didn't live actually that long after the war. He got typhus and died, but was not executed in the camps. So this was Desnos, who did this all the time in his poems. This was Desnos committing himself to a flight of imagination. And because he did, he, he saved his own life and the life of all these men. Isn't that an amazing story? Yeah. That's worth the whole book, that, just that story. You don't have to read anything else. Don't buy the book, now you know the story. So where did I hear this story? I heard this story a little, a little while ago when I was uh, participating in a poetry reading at the Jewish Museum in San Francisco. It was, the title of the reading was something like Living Jewish Poets Read the Works of Dead Jewish Poets. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I mean, really, that was really what it was. And so a whole bunch of Jewish poets from San Francisco area were invited to select uh, poems from a deceased Jewish poet and read and talk about the poet and read the works. And I think I was reading works of Paul Ceylon and remember my friend uh, Suzanne Stein read works from Gertrude Stein. And my friend Alan Bernheimer, who translates Desnos from French, read a few of his translations of Desnos and told the story. So I was so moved by the story that uh, I said to Alan uh, later, where did you get that story? Because I've, I've been thinking about it, and I feel it's, it must be true, but on the other hand, it's sort of like too good to be true. It has to be an urban legend, maybe, you know? So I want to track this down. So he told me that he got it from Susan Griffin, who's a Bay Area writer, and I, and I don't know, know her, but I found out how to get a hold of her, and I asked her, and she said, well, I got it from my friend Odette, who was a survivor of the camps, and Odette, pretty sure it's true, and she got it from a friend who was there, and so I think it's true, but um, I, I, you know, I can't really prove it. But then later, I thought to myself, there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that this story is true. It's absolutely true. Because the human imagination really is that powerful. I think all artists know this. That the imagination creates its own self-validating truth. So powerful that it affects inner and outer transformation. It changes the world. So when I say that I am absolutely certain that this story of Robert Desnos is true, 
I don't mean I am absolutely certain of it as an, an objectifiably an objectively verifiable event, although I do believe it's true as such. But in another way, I'm certain that it's true as a story because I feel the truth of this story and it changes me and it affects my life and it makes me see the world differently and behave differently. And in that sense, it's truer than true. Fiction writers often say, you know, my fictional book is truer than true. It's more real than real. And I think that's how it is with the imagination. It's more real than real. Imagination is really powerful and it's essential for our humanness. All religious texts, you know, I, I read a lot of Buddhist sutras and I read the Bible. What are these if not deep productions of the human imagination? All the plays we see, all the movies we see, all the stories, all the songs, all the plays, all the novels, all the anecdotes, all the movies, the paintings, the rituals we participate in, all of these things are imaginative productions that rise up from the unconscious to expand the soul because we need that. We need that to feel who we really are and we need that to be able to stand living in the world, which is such a tough thing to do. We need these things to get beyond the one-dimensional perspective of our outer perceptions and our fearful emotions. If we're only animals, you know, afraid of being prey, afraid of being insulted or overcome, if that's all we are, if we, all we are is defensive in this world, which is a dangerous world, world, if that's all we are, we can't live. That's, we can't survive that way. So I'm saying that imagination is not an escape from reality. What we call the real world is not the real world. Imagination deepens and enriches reality. It shows us the real reality. It adds depth, meaning, feeling, possibility. Everything in us that is creative and ennobling has its source in the imagination. If there were no imagination, humanity would just like perish from entropy. Just the, the crushing weight of nothing but materiality. Nothing but getting and spending would be too much for us. We wouldn't be able to stand it. We would slowly wind down like a clock. To go beyond the possible to the impossible which is something we humans uniquely are able to do. We need first to imagine it. So, I begin to write about what is the imagination and how have we thought about it and felt about it over the generations in our thinking, you know, from the Greek thought all the way through the 
German idealist philosophers and the romantic poets and so on and so on. But here's the thing that is very important about the imagination, maybe the most important thing. Love requires imagination, right? Actual love, which is such a mystery to us, is an, is an act of imagination. Now, it doesn't take imagination to say, I have needs, I need, you know, I need a friend, I need somebody to hug, you fulfill my needs, let's get together. That's pretty simple. That's, that's easy enough, right? But I wouldn't call that exactly love. That's why I think, we, we, because love takes so much imagination and because there isn't so much imagination around these days, I think that's one reason why our romantic relationships are in such a pickle, right? Because people don't really know how to love each other that much. Love takes imagination. To think of another person as yourself, as more important to you than yourself. This is an act of supreme imagination. So, imagination is not only important to give us meaning and depth in our living, it's also important for our human relationships, for our capacity to love one another in a way that transcends ourselves, not just filling our needs, filling one another's needs for companionship, but more than that, transcend ourselves through our ability to love. So I want to read you a, a little passage from, this is an odd ball thing to do, but when you write a lot of books, I, I keep writing a lot of books not because I have anything to say, because <laughs> I don't really have anything to say, and whatever I have to say, somebody already said it. I'm not kidding myself that I have anything to say that somebody didn't already say much better long ago, you know. But you, you get into the habit of writing and you can't stop, you know, this thing. So, uh, and you know, in Zen you're not supposed to write, you're not supposed to be a writer, so it's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but I'm an honest person and I will admit that I have this problem. <laughs> so I write a lot of books. So when you write a lot of books, you know, you write one book and it reminds you of one of your other books, right? So that's why I'm saying all this to tell you I'm now going to quote from one of my other books in this book. <laughs> but there's a reason for that. So this other book, that I, most of my books are poetry. Fortunately, you don't have to pay any attention to those books. Uh, they're poetry. And uh, so uh, I did a book called Escape This Crazy Life of Tears. And it's a long uh, poem that was written when I was on a pilgrimage to Japan with a bunch of our everyday Zen gang. We went to Japan and visited a lot of temples and so on. So I wrote a poetic diary of this trip called Escape This Crazy Life of Tears. And I'm going to read a few lines from that because we were uh, in a monastery where our dear, one of our dearest teachers, Hoitsu Suzuki, who was the, he's the son of the famous... Suzuki Shinryu, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. His son is uh, an abbot and a, and a monk in Japan and a very dear friend. And he gave us a great Dharma talk, uh, which 
I wrote down in lines. And here's, here's, the, here's the lines. Hojo-san, which is what we call them. Hojo-san. East, west. A person of Zazen. Zazen is Zen meditation. East, west. A person of Zazen is the same. Grandmother mind. The kind heart. Is Imagination. Imagination is feeling for another. See them as yourself. Takes imagination. Imagination expands the heart. One day woke, heard sound in both ears, sudden hearing loss. My eyes don't work right either. Age is slowly melting my body with each loss there's gain. My ears, my eyes, more mine now than ever, before not. So when I lose my life to death, will my life be owned by me more than than it ever was. Isn't that amazing? Dharma talk? Who would ever think such a thing? See the world in such a way? Amazing. Imagination expands the heart. Causing us to see others as ourselves. That's love, right? And to see ourselves as not belonging to us. We all believe, you know, our lives, this is me, it's my life. We believe that, you know. But is it really so? Earlier in the chapter, I'm quoting Shelley's famous essay, In Defense of Poetry, That's the famous essay where he ends the last line is, poets are the unacknowledged uh, legislators of the world. And the reason he says that is because he's saying that um, poets, he defines broadly as those who uh, are committed to and develop the imagination. And the imagination develops affection and love. And it's affection and love that is the basis of morals. And all good laws in a just society are based on affection and caring for one another, which comes from the imagination. And he says in in that essay, the great secret of morals is love, a going out of ourself and an identification with others. The great instrument of moral good is the imagination. So to me, this is such a profound and important truth. What we are all, all of us, feel inside. The currents of meaning and meaninglessness, of love and loneliness, of possibility and impossibility. What goes on inside of any one person is measureless. You know, we do not understand ourselves, let alone one another. It's immense what goes on inside every person. 
we'll never understand who and what we really are. What makes us do what we do and feel what we feel. And only the imagination is deep and wide enough to open us up to the profound healing in which we can feel in ourselves the feeling of others. So that thought, connecting imagination to love and justice and morals in society, is how we get to the idea of the bodhisattva. Which is, uh, you know that word? Everybody knows what a bodhisattva is about? Yeah. So in early, in early Buddhism, so uh, Theravada Buddhism, we could say, is, is based on early Buddhist teachings the earliest teachings. And in the earliest teachings, uh, there's one bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a Buddha in training. And there's one bodhisattva, Shakyamuni Buddha, in previous lives. He's training to be born into this life to be the Buddha that we all, all appreciate as the Buddha. And what does he do in all those past lives? Well, what he does is he does devotional, he doesn't meditate particularly, and maybe he does a little bit, but mostly the stories are not about, of his previous lives, are not about how he meditated, they're about how he was selflessly kind and selflessly devoted to others, especially other Buddhists. And after all that selfless devotion, he was born into this life destined to become a Buddha, and he did become a Buddha. So there's one Bodhisattva in the early texts, but in Mahayana Buddhism, there's infinite Bodhisattvas. Why? Because every one of us is a Buddha in training. We're somewhere along the path. Maybe we have a long way to go, like maybe 100,000 lifetimes more. We don't know. (laughs) But probably not. Probably if we're human, we already had 100,000 lifetimes to get to this point. So maybe we only have like five more lifetimes or two or three, maybe only one. And if we're here at Spirit Rock, that means that we don't have that many. Because <laughs> No, really. Because uh, you, you have to hear the teaching and be interested in it in order to, you know. So anyway, the point is, there are a lot of bodhisattvas. And, and, and in Mahayana Buddhism, it becomes the case that bodhisattvas are more revered and more appreciated than Buddhas even. Because the thing about bodhisattvas is, as I said a moment ago, their main practice is devotion to others. Love and activity that comes out of love is the main point of bodhisattva practice. And since the highest and and, and most uh, sound well-being possible is to be found in awakening, Bodhisattvas are also doing many other practices to become awakened for the benefit of others. They don't really want to be awakened for themselves, not because they're so altruistic, but because they get it that there is no myself other than others, right? Because they're, they're loving everybody. So they know that my awakening means everyone's awakening. So bodhisattvas are the energizer bunnies of Buddhism. They just keep on going. They're innocent and enthusiastic, and they are making endless efforts 
over endless lifetimes to do endless practice and to perform endless benefit for others. Bodhisattvas have no problem deferring their own awakening until every other sentient being is saved. And in many, many sutras and treatises that touch on the Bodhisattva ideal in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, there's a really inspiring and extravagant and idealistic and an essentially imaginative portrait of the perfect kind human being whose love and enthusiasm is literally without boundary. So this is an ideal. It's a kind of wonderful ideal that that's only, only the imagination can embrace. And every ideal, think about it, is an imaginative projection. I mean, without the imagination, there would be no idea of, like, justice or love. Where, where do these things come from? I mean, they don't really exist as a thing. You know, there's no such thing as justice. It's like something we imagine, and we work toward. And we never get there, but we keep working toward it. So all ideals are imaginative projections. Because it's amazing, human beings can conceive of such things, right? They're all, in a way, like impossibilities and abstractions. Justice, peace, you know, peace, what could that be? We, we made it up, it's an imaginative projection. But we can do that. We're the only animals that have that capacity to imagine such things and then to commit ourselves to them. It's a wonderful thing. There's nothing better than imagining something like that and then committing yourself to it and living by it. This is one of the highest things that a human being can do. And it's our ideals that propel us forward into futures and better worlds. And when you think about it, Religions are the great repositories of such ideals. That's why we get mad at our religions, because they seem to be asking us to do impossible things. You know, be good. Well, I don't want to be good, you know. It's too hard and it's too restrictive. But really, we need these ideals, because we can't live without them. Idealism certainly can be overdone. So in the Bodhisattva path, you have this combination of extravagant, literally impossible idealism combined with total honesty and total realism. I am going to be perfectly kind and loving. And this is how I am right now. I'm not perfectly kind and loving right now. Far from it. But I see how I am right now, and I'm working with it, and I'm going in the direction of perfect love, and I'm committed to it. That's how bodhisattvas conduct themselves. So in Zen practice, we, 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 bodhisattvas make vows. In, in the Buddhist sutras, the Mahayana sutras are full of extravagant vows 
you know, the Bodhisattva's page after page after page of Bodhisattva's vowing to do this and vowing to do that and so on. As many beings as there are in the river Ganges, I'm going to say it. So in Zen, we, we uh, at the end of every Dharma talk, actually, this is not a Zen place, so we won't do this tonight, but in Zen, at the end of every formal Dharma talk, we take the four Bodhisattva vows, which are, even though beings are infinite in number, I will save them all. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. Even though the, the delusions that human beings are prey to are infinite in number, I will clear them all up. Every one of them. I'm, I'm going to do it. Even though the teachings of the Buddha and of wisdom, of all kinds of wisdom teachings, are infinite in number, I'm going to master each and every one of them. I'm doing it, for sure. And even though the Buddha way, being fully awakened, is like inconceivable, I can't even imagine it, still, I will do it. I will do it. These are the bodhisattva vows that are taken every day in Zen temples and monasteries all over the world. This is the commitment of a bodhisattva. The fact that it is by definition impossible only makes it better. Because something that you could do is not worthy of you, right? It's not enough for you. Then what are you going to do? Right? After you do it, then what? Now, bodhisattvas revel in their impossible vows and in their commitment to loving kindness and benefit for others. And totally realistic about the world we live in and themselves. So it should not, if you're on an infinite path, you're always the same distance from the end, you know? Right? <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah. So nobody's ahead and nobody's behind. And, and there really isn't any progress, although you make progress all the time, but there really isn't any progress because you still have an infinite distance to go. <laughs> right? So it's a wonderful thing, this uh, commitment to making effort. So there's no pressure, right? There's no pressure to complete an impossible job. All you have to do is keep going. So uh, I think... And I am totally serious about this. I, I, I think that uh, humanity can no longer afford to be ordinary, normal, selfish, small-minded people that we all have always been. I think we've come to the end of that. I think if you think about all the pain that we're all feeling now in this world, like I, I've been feeling a lot of it, like very personally. Not that I'm uh, the recipient of these bad things. I'm just feeling it, feeling guilty and horrible about it and grieving about it. You know, this kind of the Me Too movement. Really it's about like the way that men have like been violent to women forever. I mean, think about it. Do you think that men were nicer to women a thousand years ago? I don't think so. I think, if anything, far worse. This has been going on a long time. Racial injustice, how long has this been? Did this start lately? 
it's been going on a long, long time because we have mistrusted each other and demonized each other and othered one another forever and ever and ever. And, and then we're, you know, killing our good habitat on the planet in our selfishness. I'm not giving that up if you're not giving it up. That's why they don't sign the, the climate agreements, you know, because you're not going to, I know you're not going to abide by this agreement, so I'm not going to abide by it either. If you're not going to, I'm not going to, you know. So we can't be doing this anymore. We really can't. So now, we all have to be bodhisattvas. I think we all have to be bodhisattvas. I don't mean we all have to be practitioners of Buddhism because that's not the point. But we all have to have a path, a serious path, in the direction of altruism and caring for others and being willing to make sacrifices for one another. Being willing to say, yeah, I, I, I have had a lot of privilege and uh, it isn't right. And I, don't, I'm, I, I can't keep it. Because it crushes my soul to do that to you and everybody else. We can't do that anymore. So I think it's actually a matter of some urgency that we collectively awaken and arouse our bodhisattva hearts and, and this is more than just a, an enthusiasm or a passing idea, you know. If, if, you, if I'm sitting here saying all this blah, blah, and it's totally convincing, you're sitting there thinking, oh, yes, yes. You walk out of here, how long will that last? Five minutes? Ten, maybe? Maybe by the time you get home, you might still be inspired by it, but then tomorrow morning it's gone. Because you need a path. You don't need inspiration. You need a path. So there's a bodhisattva path. And the Bodhisattva path is the six paramitas. There are other definitions of it, but I'm using... For, in the book, I, I define the Bodhisattva path as the six paramitas. A path of discipline and effort every single day for the rest of one's life. But a joyful path. A path of delight. A path of the imagination. So the first practice is generosity. The recognition of how generous life is and how generous it is that you have been born and that you're given every day. Unbelievable, you know. The sky. Did you purchase this sky? Did you make a lot of money and buy the sky? No, somebody gave it to you every single day. So generosity, ethical conduct, the deep commitment to not hurting anyone and to cherishing and promoting life. Patient forbearance. Knowing how to cope with very difficult things that will for sure happen. No one will escape difficult things happening. Our typical strategy is to deny them, avoid them, you know, do everything we can to prevent them from happening and be freaked out and scared when they do happen. Bodhisattvas have to learn how to eat difficulties for breakfast and make them stronger. So, of course, they try to prevent difficulties if possible. It's not like 
they're trying to make things difficult. They hope that nothing difficult ever happen, happens, but, it, but they know it will. And when it does, they face it. And they know how to practice with it. It's a whole practice facing our difficulties, dealing with our emotions and our fears, and learning how to let go and be forbearing in the face of difficulty. The fourth bodhisattva practice is joyful effort, learning how to be that energizer bunny, keep going, but not going dutifully or doggedly, but going with a light spirit, with joy, with happiness. We should all be happy. We have to be happy. Uh, if we're, I think now, maybe if we think the world is in bad shape, we think, well, I'm, I can't be happy. No, but we have to be happy. We have to be happy so that we can share our happiness with one another. We have to buoy each other up. So we have to cultivate that happiness in our own heart and make joyful effort. That's the fourth bodhisattva practice. And the fifth bodhisattva practice is meditation in all of its many forms. And the sixth is transcendent wisdom, which is a whole other story in itself. The wisdom that sees with the eye of the imagination, that doesn't see anymore only this bedraggled world, but sees beyond this world to what's in the world, actually. The world is more than the world. You know, we can't just see what's going on in the world in the way that the newspaper tells us to see it, in the way that the cable news tells us to see it, or even the conversation of our friends tells us to see it. The world is not that. There's something else going on in the world that we have to see. And that something else is love. The love that love is going on all around us. And we, and we are forgetting to notice it because we don't have the eye to see it. Nothing happens without love. We're here, sitting in this room, literally, because of love. Because our parents loved one another, at least for a moment, anyway. Because other people have loved us and made it possible for us to be here. I was just today, I'm friends with Jack, you know. I was just today with Jack, actually. And as I was driving here, I was thinking, to, to a great extent, we're sitting in a room that's a product of Jack's love. Not only Jack, of course, but I'm using Jack for the whole community that produced. Love is what produced this center, right? Love of the Dharma, love of the possibility, love of human beings. Every day we are living because of love. It's all around us. But we don't see it. We have to open our eye to see it. It's got to be more than an idea. We actually have to see it. We have to open up our eyes. And when we look at other people, and the world, and the sky, and the trees, and the, and the earth, we have to see actually see love, not see threatening others. Really. And this takes effort. It takes the effort. This is the effort. It's, a, it's the great achievement of practice to, to open up those eyes. It takes a lifetime of effort. And it, and it deepens and deepens and deepens over a whole lifetime and another lifetime. 
So it's a path. So I think now, really and truly, I think uh, it's so funny, you know, because uh, for, for a while now, for a few hundred years, we were thinking, oh, we're so smart now. <laughs> you know, we're so smart. We know the world isn't flat. We know that. We know that there's all this space out there and everything, and we can see inside of matter, and we see all this, all this, and we can we can we can make we can cure all these illnesses and everything. Look how smart we are, and we're way past the need for religion and spirituality. We don't need that because that's a superstition stuff. And what do they know? They thought the world was flat. They thought God was this guy up in the sky. Nonsense! 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 We don't need that anymore. But uh, no, we do. We really do. We probably need to not have narrow-minded religion. We need to not have sects and people fighting each other over their belief systems. Yeah, we don't need that, for sure. But we really need the powerful technologies and teachings of all the world's religions. Every one of them. Every one of them has a piece of the truth. So we need all of that, and we need to practice them. And make our own, find our own way. We have to do what's true to us and what's honest to us. We, we can't accept somebody else's authority or some belief system that we don't like or be, really believe in. We have to, it has to be coming from our own truth, our own heart. But we have to make use of these different systems and we have to have discipline and we have to be serious because the world needs every one of us. So I think it becomes an urgent matter at this point. Everyone, for every one of us. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything, you know, but just saying that we really need to do this. So that's what I'm writing about in this book, and that's why I'm writing about it. So now, so, you know, I wrote a book, so I know what I think. It's in the book, you know. <laughs> But what do you think? That's I want to know what every one of you is, thinks. I really do. Uh, I would like to have like a two-hour conversation with every one of you, but that I know is not going to happen. However, I could find out what every one of you thinks if you all tell me what you think at the same time. <laughs> right? Then I could. So let's try to do that uh, by having everybody turn to someone next to them so that everybody has one person to talk to and uh, having about uh, maybe a six or seven minute conversation being sensitive to let both of you speak and, 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 and I'm, you can obviously talk about whatever you want or not say anything at all if you don't want to but I would like to suggest if you're willing that you talk with that person about how you're feeling right now, right now, about what I'm saying. And I would like you to be like maximally honest if like you say, I find this like, this freaks me out, I don't really like it, and it's disturbing to me, and it's imposing, you know, on me. Please say that. Because honesty is much better than 
in religious uh, life, there's this thing about let's be nice and polite. Uh, we should be nice and polite, not mean, but not at the cost of honesty. I think honesty is a gift to be willing to be honest. So I, I'm hoping that everybody will be really honest w- with your fears, your hopes, your whatever you whatever you're feeling now. So let's see what happens. Let's see if we can do this. Okay. So I'll take a little break, and I'll maybe walk around and listen so I can hear what different people... Sometimes I do this, and I hear like several people talking at once, and it's so interesting to hear seven, eight people at the same time speaking in all different things, you know. So I might do that. Okay? I'll, I'll time it about six or seven minutes. Whoever's just nearby so we don't have to move chairs around. But let's talk. Is there anybody uh, who doesn't have a partner? Does everybody have someone to talk to? Okay, there's someone you can pair up with over there. Okay. Everybody else has someone to talk to? Okay. Keep going, keep going. Sorry to interrupt.
So can we stop? Can we stop there? And continue uh, all of us together. So uh, let's let's hear from some people, some comments, some thoughts, uh, things that we can say further from where we were starting. So, what are you all thinking? How are you doing? Oh, there's our mic runner. Thank you. Yeah. You you talk uh, over here, right up in front. Yeah. <laughs> and someone over. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Right in front first, and then and then we'll go back. Yeah. Um, I'm in my fifties, and for the first time, I perceived that I could learn something new about love, so I really uh, uh, find myself stretched with the understanding that it's not a physiological process where we feel love for somebody or attachment or affection, that it's actually a poet aspect of imagination. I never realized that there could be a spin to that that is actually not very earthy. So... Mm -hmm it will take me time to adapt to this thought. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. Yeah, it's not that love is not those things, but those things are not the full measure of what the possibility of love. Loving everyone and everything in life is different from I'm attracted to and, you know, one person or something like that. Yeah. Right, that's like channeling love, but it's not the measure of what love is, Right. Yeah, well, that's brilliant. That's wonderful. Yeah, so think about that. It sounds like you could think about that for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, there was somebody also in the back. Uh, oh, you have a mic already. Oh, good. We have two mics. So go ahead. We can. So it, it's in the back. It's in the back. Yeah. Please speak. Yeah. Hi there. Um, Hi. So I was just talking with my friend Laura, who's a Zen practitioner, and we were talking. Yes, I know Laura well. I know. <laughs> And so we were talking about what it's like to be on the path, either in your practice or in your work. And in my work, I am in a place of constant uh, imagination and mm -hmm. storytelling, mm -hmm. and I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so we talked a lot about how do you stay on the path, what inspires you to continue on the path, either in your practice or in your work, when you're feeling so externally and internally exhausted. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Great question. And it just goes to show you that uh, I think that uh, it's a long story why we're like this. But I think that, uh, tell me if this doesn't ring true to you. We uh, mostly, we think of like religion is like a church. You belong to the church and you go there but it doesn't really necessarily have that much to do with your life all the time. We think of spiritual practice as being about your life all the time, right? But we think of spiritual practice as being something we do by and for ourselves. So it can be tiring. You can get worn out, right? Uh, trying to keep it up. So bodhisattvas know that we practice together. So we cheer each other up. That's, that's the answer, 
we cheer each other up. We, when we're, when we're um, falling down and tired out, because we will get tired out, of course, we know that now is the time to hang out with my Dharma friends, my, my friends who will cheer me up and, and, and buoy me up. And I know how to take care of myself. I, I, this is bodhisattvas, they look at it like this. I'm all the time in touch with my mood and my, my energy and my state of mind. And uh, I'm checking how I'm doing. And, and I know the signs of when I'm starting to uh, fall apart and unravel. And I know what to do when that happens. Sometimes what to do is like take a rest. Go home and just have a quiet time. And uh, I'll be better tomorrow. Sometimes something else. But I know, I know what to do. So I'm, I'm paying attention, and I know what to do. I don't let myself get to the place where I'm running such a big deficit, and I'm so exhausted and so uninspired that I don't know what to do anymore. We don't let that happen to ourselves, because we, we are observing all the time. All the time, working with our energy and our effort, and making sure we're on the beam, and we, and we definitely depend on other people to help us with that. So it's a process, you know. Sometimes there are times when, you know, yeah, it's just dark for a while. Oh, man, really hard. But we pick ourselves up and we get some help and so on. So, yeah, sorry. That, but that's the thing, is that uh, the world is so speeded up that even if you have the greatest job and the most fun thing to do, it makes you tired out because you have to do it twice as fast <laughs> and get twice as much done and so on and so on, you know. But... Um, Bodhisattvas know that the job is infinitely, uh, you know, infinitely more to do. And since Bodhisattvas fully understand that the linear model of time is not time, they know that the job is already done. So they can relax. <laughs> so. Why am I? Why am I? Why am I pushing myself around here to do more and all this? Why don't I just realize that the perfection that I seek is here now? It's here right now. What am I worried about? Right? Bodhisattvas know stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question as I was talking to my neighbor here that we're both lay practitioners uh-huh. trying to establish a spiritual part of our lives and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yet we also participate with, with very, uh, with monks, with uh-huh. writers like yourself, uh-huh. with Rinpoches and Talkus and yeah. you know, all the rest. So how do we measure ourselves? as lay practitioners in a world separate but but benefiting from more organized practice and how do we keep ourselves achieving more and more rather than simply thinking that our our own rituals and practices are enough uh. Well, I'm not sure that I kind of grasp the idea of your question. Are you saying, how do you do that when you, when you look at the Rinpoches and, the, and these other people and they seem to be doing much more than you? Is that what Right, right, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like two different worlds, but we're connected. I see. You know, so. Well, I'll tell you, I can tell you from personal experience, the idea that the Rinpoches and all that uh, 
It's an illusion. It's a completely illusion. I was I was talking, uh, uh, not Jack, but some other person that I was talking to recently, who's a spiritual teacher, and they were saying it's so discouraging. Spiritual teachers are s- such terrible people, you know. <laughs> this was a spiritual teacher, you know, and, and I'm discouraged. And I said, well, well, right. I would I don't blame you, but it's not the spiritual teachers that you should look to for encouragement. It's the spiritual practitioners, the ordinary practitioners who don't go around thinking they're spiritual teachers mm. and big shots <laughs> that are the ones who are actually doing the practice. So I think that you th- your idea that the Rinpoches and the Zen masters and the monks know what they're doing and you don't is probably the reverse. <laughs> I mean, they, they, no, don't get me wrong. They, they know stuff and they're valuable to get you know, teachings and whatnot from them. But you may be a more exemplary Practitioner, you may actually, uh, I'm serious, you may actually, because you don't think that you know anything, <laughs> you know, you, and because you have asked such a humble question, it may be that you actually manifest the spirit of the Buddha more than your average uh, spiritual guru who goes around giving lectures and writing books and all of this, you know. Anybody can do that, really. <laughs> really. <laughs> That's yeah. a good way to look at this. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think no, I think that um, I think the only important thing is a sense of a sense of commitment and continuity of practice. So just knowing that uh, I, I may not be so smart about this or so skillful at this, but I, I know that I'm committed to it. I know it's important to me, and I know it's I know it's an organizing principle for my life and that and that I know that everything in my life that's important to me makes more sense and goes better when I organize it around my practice I know that and I know I'm trying I think if you have those two things down the rest of it is doesn't make any difference you know it doesn't matter how good you think you are at it that, that's an, that's a, even a meaningless to me a meaningless idea but that you're committed to it and that you are making effort then you're okay, and then you don't need to measure yourself in any way. Uh, it doesn't. It just. It's just um, confusing, really, to try to measure yourself. It doesn't get you anywhere. And when you find yourself measuring like that, you should think to yourself: So, what is it that makes me want to do that? Why? Why am I? Why would I think that way? What? What is it? And then investigate that in yourself. What? What is that that makes me? want to measure the immeasurable. Why would I want to do that? Why, why am I doing that? And then, and then you can discover why. And then you'll learn something really important. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. So, there's hands back there and, and there's one hand in the front, I see. And somebody's pointing over here. So we've got three, three speakers. Me? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Great to hear you. Um, yeah, nice to see you again. You too. You talked a lot about trauma or grief, and I'm wondering about um, how much like collective trauma is getting processed right now, and what you recommend in terms of not like being able to hold that, feel it, but not getting caught and losing the view. Yeah, it's kind of. I noticed the last couple of days, I've been really caught at times and I can really feel like how much is just moving through my body and yeah. soul and can you 
you speak a little bit to that? Mm. Yeah, well, I bet if you, when you're really feeling that, if you ask yourself the question, uh, um, is it the case that my, that what's really painful here is that I want it to be otherwise. I want it to be otherwise. I think something's wrong. Right? I think that is the essence of our problem. Because, again, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think that uh, anybody who doesn't spend a certain amount of time, more or less every day, in grief and sorrow is simply not paying attention to the world. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about the contemporary problems we have. I mean any time in history, any time, anywhere, a human being should spend a certain amount of time realizing what a catastrophe it is being human. You know, it is. And I think we should really uh, be sobered up about that every single day. But when you realize that is just the way it is. It's just not going to be another way. It's not supposed to be another way. It's just that way. Because even if we had a perfect world, we would still die and get sick, right? And that would be enough for us to be sad and sorrowful. And that which was once young is going to be old. That which was once fresh will die back. Always, no matter what. So you know that a certain amount of sorrow and grief is, I mean, I, th- I look at sorrow and grief. I, I'm happy when I feel bad. I am. Because I think, good, this is my practice, to feel a certain amount of grief over the, what I would not want to feel this, what I want to be going along. I'm happy. Everything is fine. I'm, look at me. I'm on top of the world. Do I want to be like that? No. No. I want to be really upset and sorry about when my friends get sick and die, when I look at the world and its problems, I want to feel it. I don't want to be stuck there, right? I want to, have the, I want to see that as an important part of my spiritual practice, and I want to understand, I want to see with the eye of transcendent wisdom, I want to see the love right even in that. I mean, you know, you go and you see your friend, like I was up the other day seeing a friend who had died, and, you know, we were sitting with her body, and at, at one and the same time, there were tears and joy at the same time because it was both terribly sad and beautiful at the same time. And, and it's all suffering is like that. So when we understand that, you realize that when you're in this sort of toxic state of mind, it's because you think it shouldn't be this way or somebody made this happen. This is a mistake. Or I should be healed. I can find a good therapist and it'll heal my trauma or something. You know, I'm not, I, don't get me wrong. Heal your trauma. Go to a good therapist if you can. You know, find one. But I don't mean that. But I mean, realize that pain is basic. And it's healthy to feel it and know it. It's good and it's healthy. So, and, and then, you're, this again, here's where our friends help us. Our friends help us. And I think the Dharma, to me, I don't know about you, but I, I'm inspired by the teachings. Uh, when I hear them or read them, it buoys me up because it gives me a perspective, right, that's big enough to hold that. So you know what you need and you go and you say, okay, well, I'm feeling really awful and so it must be that I'm expecting things to be otherwise. Let me go and 
hear the teachings or go and visit a friend or whatever I know will make me set me on the right path again yeah thank you yeah thank you now you you were the next and then you were the next right you still want to talk yeah because maybe time goes by and you don't want to talk anymore okay yeah good evening good evening so did I just hear you say it hurts so good yeah yeah isn't that a lyric for a song or something um, what is the term you use for those who are put it in training? What is it? I've never bodhisattvas. Yes. Yeah, bodhisattvas. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you answered a question while you were talking when you mentioned that we are all pursuing the infinite, and, and therefore we're always at the same distance to the end. Yeah. And in addition to that, we're all equal. Yeah. And that, I, I love that. That yeah. was just so profound. Yeah. And, uh, uh, that's something that um, I will take away with me tonight. Yeah, and, oh, that's good. Yeah, it's the truth, too. Yeah. It really is. I mean, if, you're, if you were born, and if you're going to die, and you know it, and <clears throat> you would like to <clears throat> love, and you would like it if your life was meaningful if that's true of you you are a spiritual hero on a path regardless of where you are on that path you're just as far along on it as anybody else amen yeah everybody and that's true of every every human being every no even how no matter how buried those feelings are in you if they're there in you that goes along with being human all those things go along with being human and the last thing was, um, I guess, I think what you were saying before is that um, sorrow, grief, and pain is the price we pay for the gift of free will that differs us from the rest of the creatures on this earth. Yes, that sounds good. I like that. <laughs> uh, he, he, was, he was, I'm sorry, I'm pointing fingers and all that, but I don't, obviously don't know everybody's name, but what is your name after all? Johnny. Okay, Johnny's talking next. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, one reflection and then one question. One re- sorry. One reflection and then one question. One reflection uh, was on uh, how for me, I, I grew up in organized religion and how that was a world of mystical knowledge. And uh, you learn to imagine because you almost have to. You have to have faith, right? Yeah, so that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but then, and I'm sure this is a common journey, Around 16, 17, I started questioning that. Yeah. And then for the next decade or so, pendulum swung too far to the other way. Yeah. And I would only, you know, I, I, I attach myself to things that I could understand and deduce logically. And anything yeah. beyond that, um, I was suspect of. And yeah. I stopped imagining. And so I think your point around how important it is to cultivate the ability to imagine, because we unlearn that so quickly. Um, where I'm stuck and where my question is, is when I look at all great change, the seeds that is planted is a seed of imagination. You have to start with imagining a possibility of something that doesn't currently exist. But then for that possibility to be actualized requires an immense amount of effort yeah. external. And so my question is, is if we imagine as bodhisattvas a world that could be different to actually actualize that in face of what we're currently experiencing, it seems to me like it will require, you know, Newton's law of, of motion, an object in motion will stay in motion until 
that encounters an equal and opposite force. And the amount of force that's moving against us is so immense. How do we counteract that? And does not, doesn't it require something beyond just transforming ourselves and actively, you know, almost building an army, not using guns and bullets, but using wisdom, but exerting it actively mm-hmm. um, and intentionally and widely to, to realize the amount of change that we need to um, uh, and see through kind of, okay, what comes from this imagination. And that's where I just get, get really stuck, uh, particularly the Buddhism around how to reconcile that with also being uh, non-attached um, and focused on the self uh, versus others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my question is, is, is just how do you think about that process? Mm-hmm. And, well, um, you're right. Of course, and the bodhisattva path is not a path of an inward path that's self-oriented. It's the opposite. For bodhisattvas, uh, inside and outside are not two different things. Outside is inside. Inside is outside. So when bodhisattvas decide they want to be of benefit to sentient beings, if being of benefit to sentient beings requires an enormous amount of what you might call external effort, they do it. So yes, yes. I mean, I think right now it's pretty obvious that we need to do a lot of stuff, right? That to, to change uh, the world around. Uh, I'm quite uh, thinking all the time and quite worried about the climate problem. Maybe that's what you're referring to. I don't know, but that's what I'm thinking about. I think it's a very bad problem, and I think that the amount that I mean that in a way. It's kind of dismaying that, I mean, I knew about it and was talking about it when I was young. Forty years ago, fifty years ago, we were talking about this. And it's quite stunning that nothing's happened. Nothing, really nothing. A few solar panels, but nothing. They keep, they keep the carbon in the atmosphere keeps going up and up and up and up and up. Nothing's been done. It's stunning. And the amount that would have to be done is overwhelming. And... Uh, the bad effects are almost now uh, certain and not to be denied, even if we did the impossible. So yes, we have to make major, major changes. But, uh, so, I always always say to people, you know what, Uh, I personally, me, I'm doomed. I am. Really. I uh, don't think that I'm going to be able to live too much longer in good health and with my whole brain working and everything because I'm at my age. Just this, you know, just a fact. How many more years can I sit up here and keep putting sentences together before I can't sit up straight and I can't talk sensibly? Five? Five years? Ten? I don't know. Not that many. More, yeah. Not that many. My point is, I'm doomed. Definitely for sure. In me, bad stuff is going to happen to me. No doubt. Soon. Right? So, I might as well go home and pull the covers up over my head and cry all day long for the rest of my life. No. No, I don't do that. I get up and I'm actually happier than I ever have been in my whole life. I'm very happy to be alive and I'm enormously grateful for all the things about my life 
I'm more grateful than I've ever been. I mean, I, things that I just took for granted, I think, wow, it's amazing, you know. I'm really happy and really grateful. And uh, I think every day, every single day, I think about how I'm doomed and about how, uh, and I think about my death pretty much every day. And, and I exercise and I try to eat good food. I have excellent doctors at the Kaiser and if, if there's something wrong with me, I check it out. And if, and if there is a problem, I get, I'm seeking treatment, the best treatment that I can get. Right? Well, we're all doomed in just that way. Really. We, we are going to have bad climate problems. And we don't know what they're going to be exactly. But that there are going to be bad problems, we can pretty much rest assured. Does that mean we're going to go to bed and put the covers up over our head and say, oh no, we're doomed? Are we going to freak out and run around in circles and yell and scream? Are we going to get mad at all the people that we think did this to us? No, we did this to us. So, but we're going to do, just like, you know, I'm doing my exercise, we're going to do everything that could possibly be done to get the people who, it would be actually quite simple to get a few people to say, uh, no more looking for extra deposits of carbon underground. Just don't look, don't get any more. Very simple. How many oil companies are there? Big oil companies. Ten? I don't know. Seven. Seven, yeah. Get them all to stop looking for, pass a law. You know, in other words, what I'm saying is we, sh- we need to do stuff, serious stuff, and we need to keep doing it, and we need to know that uh, it, maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. We don't know. But we know one thing, for sure. Doing good is good. That's true, for sure. So we don't know whether doing good brings the results we would hope for, but we know that doing good is good. So when we do good, it makes us happy, and we know we're doing a good thing. So we do good things. I, I, I enjoy my exercise, you know, it's a good, and it makes me happy because it's a good thing. It makes me feel better, you know. So we all should be doing stuff we know is good as much as possible. Externally, internally, there's no difference. And we don't know what, what will happen. It, it seems, uh, I think we might be coming to a tipping point where all of a sudden everybody wakes up one morning and they say, oh my God, let's do something. We can't do this anymore like we have. I, I think we may be getting there. I hope so. But we don't going to sit around and wait for that to happen. We're going to do stuff. So do stuff. Definitely do stuff. That they, they shouldn't, I mean, they shouldn't burn one more drop of carbon starting now. They shouldn't. It's bad, you know. They should stop now. Now, like by the time we leave here, you know, they should stop. <laughs> because it's that bad. And they're not stopping. Nobody is stopping. Even the, you know, when, you, when people say they're green, you know, uh, like I remember I went to one conference and some guy was standing up about how, um, saying about how green California was and how wonderful everything was in California. We weren't, we were these numbers, this and, and the other thing. And, and uh, somebody said, well, so there's a lot of computers in California. Do you, where are they made? And this guy said, well, they're all made in China. So the Chinese are like burning stuff to make these computers that you're using. So 
the bad numbers are on their side, not on your side, but you're using the computer, so are you really that green, actually? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, in other words, the greenest of the green is not green. Because, collectively, it's all connected, and as long as the stuff is going in the air, I mean, I drove over here in a, in a car, I drive cars, you know, I go on airplanes. We're all doing this. So we have, to, we have to get active and we really have to do something. Absolutely have to do something. That's what bodhisattvas do. With joy and with energy and a sense of humor and boundless hope for loving people, bodhisattvas are doing stuff. So you've got to do stuff. You can't just think about it. You've got to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, probably... Uh, I'll be dead before like the most lurid stuff happens. But I feel sorry for I have grandchildren, you know, and they're going to have grandchildren maybe. So not good. Who else is? There? Somebody was back there. Oh, you, you, you. Yeah. Oh, you have the mic now. You want to talk? You don't want to talk. Oh, you're the mic passer. He, he's the he's the he's the mic receiver. Uh, yeah, I guess following up on that, um, I avoid the news and media. Yeah, my wife looks at the computer or her phone in the morning and says, "God, look at this." Yeah, and I say, "No." Yeah, and uh, and then I think that's crazy to get all wound up. But yeah. uh, this past election, my wife and my oldest daughter found a program that was uh, in very important. Uh, states and districts in Georgia and one other uh -huh. state, they would be sent a whole bunch of names and a letter that they would then write personally and then mm -hmm. have a return address that is in that district and it would not be political for any party but just say get out and vote. Uh, and it's just That's very a very good important. thing. Yeah, yeah. And they did, they did that and uh, two of the elections were very close but came out good. Oh. And uh, I didn't hear about that one. That's a great thing. Um, and they're both regulars here, so that, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's just yeah. Elections are really important, right? No, you know, um, elections are very important. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that's good to know about that. Yeah. Thank you. I, I've heard of people going to places and knocking on doors and stuff, but I, letter writing, I think, because especially nowadays, getting a letter is like a very special thing, you know. Yeah, and it was yeah. pointed to a specific yeah, yeah. result. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody over here. Yeah. Hi. Um, you were talking about the vows at the end of yeah. um, Zen practice, and yeah. I've always felt so overwhelmed by those. Oh, you know them, yeah. Well, I've heard them, and uh -huh. I thought, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> right. well, why would anyone do that? You know. So I was so interested in what you said that, that no, that that's an enthusiastic. That's a that's a. It just was so interesting to me. The attitude towards the vow. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know how does one change their attitude towards overwhelming uh -huh. obstacles. Right, right, right. 
Wonderful. Yeah, there's. I was just. There's a section in the in the book under the chapter on generosity that talks about how do you, your attitude, just and how do you how do you uh, change it exactly about that. Well, first of all, the first thing to do is to uh, notice that you do have an attitude, because I think that we don't know that we have attitudes, right? We don't know. We don't realize. That we are seeing, we are not seeing the world. We are seeing the world through glasses that we are wearing, and that is making us see what we see. So, we first of all is to notice that, to notice, to challenge oneself a lot, and say, "Is this really the way it is, or is this just me thinking that?" So, you begin to notice uh, your thoughts, yeah, and that's why meditation practice is. Um, it's deceptive. I mean, not deceptive, but I think a lot of people don't realize that one of the main purposes of meditation is to um, uh, make more space inside so you have the capacity to uh, notice your own thinking and feeling. Because we don't notice our own thinking and feeling. We may know that we're thinking and feeling this, but we don't we can't um, examine it because it's too immediate. We don't have spaciousness. So meditation gives you more spaciousness to look at your own thoughts and feelings. And so you begin to challenge your thoughts and feelings. If, if you, uh, you know, uh, look at a person, let's say, that you don't like, and you see that person, you say, what's my reaction? What does that do to me to have that reaction? And why do I have that reaction? And could I have a different reaction? Let me observe this. Instead of just saying, oh, there's Harry and he's the rotten person. I really always hated him. We say, okay, let's study that. Let's study that. Let's not just take that for granted. Let's study that. And let's study where does that come from and what does that do to me to feel that way about Harry? And as you study that and as you look at that, you realize, oh, I've got some uh, conditioned thoughts here that are not serving me. And that are standing in between me and the, my capacity to be loving. And I've committed myself to being loving. I'm clear that I want to do that. And so that requires me to you know, challenge my attitudes and help to, to shift them. So that's part of it. And another part of it is you know, doing things like loving kindness meditation or other compassion meditations. To constantly be opening up the heart to others and to the world. So there's a whole, I mean a lot of the stuff in the book is all about how do we take what, what, the way we are now and little by little with patience and effort over time open, open that up. And it's very doable. It really is, you can really do that. But it requires, um, that's why the sense of vowing is so important. Uh, and, and you know, like in, in, in uh, religious practice you take vows and you repeat them, right? You chant them repeating them over and over again. Because you're saying to yourself, okay, this is my commitment. I'm serious about this. And, and I do want to go in this direction. I'm really committed to that. And that means I'm going to examine uh, all my thoughts and feelings and notice their effects on me and notice where they come from and, and just keep my life more of an open book instead of this is the way it is. This is who I am. I always funny. I find it funny when people will say something like, I'm the kind of person who, <laughs> you know, this or that. 
And I think to myself, really? Do you, are, you, are you really that kind of person? Maybe today you are, but what about tomorrow? Will you be that kind of person tomorrow? Maybe not, you know? Of course, if you decide that you're that kind of person who, right? You might be that way forever. But suppose you don't assume anything. Suppose you assume that my life is fluid and open. We don't know what will happen next. next. And, I, and I'm committed to examining my life and, and, and shaping it in the direction that I've thought about and committed myself to. And I don't mean like you signed a contract or something like that. I mean just in your heart you've decided. So um, then you, you begin to work with your thoughts in a different way. And then you have a lot of patience with yourself. Oh, there I go again, you know, being an idiot, being, you know, blaming somebody. That's what I do. I've done it a lot. But it's ridiculous. It doesn't help me. And, and is he really to blame? Not, not really, you know. That's just me being crabby. and It's not his fault anyway. So I'm tolerant of my... In other words, instead of believing my thoughts, you see what I'm saying? I am tolerant of my stupid thoughts. And I know they're stupid. So I'm not going to believe them. But here I go. It's almost funny. Ha ha. Like, you know, 50 years of Buddhist practice and I still have this stupid ideas. Who can believe it? You know, it's a marvel. <laughs> so you start working with your mind that way. And, and, and it's a very, it's a very uh, important thing because um, if you're going to be doing all this stuff that you're going to be doing to you know, make them stop burning carbon, you really want to have a mind that is not blaming because you'll never talk them out of burning the carbon if you blame them. They'll, then they'll say, well, you're just a, you know, a crazy environmentalist and we never liked you anyway. And you people are so impractical. Don't you know that we have to earn a living in this world and blah, blah, blah? No, you have to love those guys who are burning the carbon and understand why they're doing it. They're doing it for us, right? For their profits and their shareholders and for us. So, in other words, what I'm saying is outer action and being clear inside go together. You want to be effective in your action? Be clear inside what you're doing and who you are and what your motivation is. But that takes, you know, and that you're working on that for your whole life. And, and it's not like you're working on it to get it done. I'm here to tell you, you will not get it done. You will always be working on it. But it's fun to work on. It's like, it's like being alive is basically a good thing. It's better than the alternative. So working on your practice is a good thing. You're not trying to get it done. What would you do? Like, I got it done, now I'm going to go on to the next thing? What? <laughs> go on to, you know. I figured out life, now I'm going on to the next thing. <laughs> so that's what I say. In other words, you're not worried about, oh, I'm so imperfect. No, no, no. Of course I'm so imperfect. That's what's interesting about being alive. Anyway, uh, I can't remember what it says in the book about it. There's a whole thing in there about how to work with you. <laughs> I didn't want to look for it and read it to you. I thought that would be stupid. But you'd think I would know what it says. Maybe I said what it, what it says. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. Could you say something about the difference or the similarities between imagination and delusion? 
imagination and delusion, yeah. Uh, that's a good one. I'm glad you brought that up. Right. Because, uh, yes, uh, somebody who says, uh, I imagine uh, that someone is telling me, and I can hear him loud and clear, to go get the gun from the rack in my parents' house and go to Spirit Rock and shoot all these dumb Buddhists. That would be an act of imagination, wouldn't it? We've seen too many of those imaginary things. Right. So, and of course I bring this up in the book, we can't say that what we call imagination is always wholesome and good, can we? No. There are manifestations of imagination that are toxic. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but in the opening story that I read, one of the, one of the most horrifying um, productions of imagination was Nazi Germany. An entire country living in a dream. An imaginary world created by a lunatic and a whole bunch of collaborators. It was a nightmare world. A world of the imagination. Right. So, uh, the way I think about this in the book, and, and, and I, uh, I wish I could claim that I you know, am a very thorough thinker and have all these things figured out, that is not the case. Uh, I just have a bad writing habit and I keep scribbling. <laughs> but what I do in the book is I, I, I use the very famous formulation of uh, the English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was also a clergyman and a philosopher. And, and he was the first English-speaking person to go to uh, the continent and learn the new philosophy of Kant, which was a very important step in terms of the history of the imagination in the West. So Coleridge defined the imagination in a really interesting way. Uh, and I give the quote in the book. He says, um, he says, there's two kinds of imagination. The primary imagination and the secondary imagination. And by the primary imagination, he means... Uh, he says, what it means is, we create the world with our sense perceptions and our minds in exactly the way that God creates the world in the beginning of time, he says. So in other words, uh, to be alive in the world and see the world and bring the world to life in your life is an act of supreme imagination. Just being in the world. The secondary imagination, he says, is when we do creative endeavors to um, like all forms of creativity, not only the arts, but anything else we would do that would be creative, innovative. That is uh, a secondary form of that same primary imagination. It's another form of it. Then he distinguishes a third element which he calls fancy, we might say fantasy. And that is his 
way of talking about the distorted imagination. So because the imagination, the primary imagination and the secondary imagination come from spirituality, come from that within us which is most divine and most sacred. But the fancy is when that same force gets mixed in with our desires and our ego and our desire for power or whatever kind of distorted desires we have. When those things get mixed up with that, it gets twisted. And it has, its power is just as strong for negativity. So the imagination is dangerous in that sense. It's not just let the imagination fly. That's why uh, ethical conduct is such an important practice for bodhisattvas. The practice of non-harming and observing one's own desire to harm, not, not necessarily in the sense of inflict pain, but any time I want to you know, uh, dominate over someone else, that's harm. Right? I want to be bigger and better than somebody else. That's harming them. It's dishonoring them. So uh, we follow precepts and we practice ethical conduct to shape our imaginations in a direction that is the primary and secondary rather than the fancy or the fantasy. So it's, yes, it's a very important question, which I didn't raise at all. I didn't want to complicate matters in the beginning, but I knew somebody would bring it up. No, 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 I, I like it. And many times when I've talked about this, somebody has brought that up because it's an obvious thing to bring up. It's an important, important aspect of this. Yeah. Yes, where's the mic? Oh, here we go. Um, so following up on that a little bit, first of all, thank you for being here. And, oh, my um, pleasure. I'm really appreciating hearing your perspective on the Bodhisattva path. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Sapiens. Are oh, you yeah. familiar with that? I, I am. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I saw a lot of YouTube talks by that guy. Yeah, yeah so Yuval Noah Hariri. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I have, I'm about halfway through, and he calls it a brief history of humankind. Yeah. And when Homo sapiens became the, the dominant species, yeah. and nothing has been the same since. Um, and the co- he, he talks of something he calls the cognitive revolution, and that that's when Homo sapiens became dominant, and everything else sort of, like, you know, just a lot of destruction has been, a lot of havoc has been wreaked. Um, and that the, at the cognitive revolution was the time that language was created, and we became able to communicate beyond immediate touch and contact. Mm-hmm. And that there was language and then there was writing so that we could also deal with concepts, mathematical or what, concepts beyond what our brains could actually take in in the moment. So we, which, what you, from one perspective, you could call reality. Like it, that actually the, that use of cognitive power was like not real. Mm. So maybe you call that imagination. I'm not sure. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I just like, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading that book and I'm uh-huh. very affected by it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stand up. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I can see I'm, it. Yeah. I'm dodging the head. Um, yeah. And, and I'm really affected by the book generally and by that idea of like what language has enabled us to do mm-hmm. in, not, in not a pretty way. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's all bad and it's all ugly. Um, and a lot happened, like we could be in larger bands of groups and then towns and cities and empires and then systems and corporations and structures. And mm -hmm. like without language and creating myths that we all believe in together, like I don't need to know you or have contact with you anymore because we believe in the same God or, or we come to Spirit Rock or we um, follow the same ethical conduct guidelines even. Like, we believe in the same laws. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't want to complicate this too much. I just, um, there's something about, like, it almost, I, I can almost see the divine and the sacred in the precognitive, in the, like, pre-homo sapiens who didn't have language and respected the natural way of life force happening yeah and that that was divine like really like they could see like yeah. a plant growing sun rising yeah without there being imagination or any kind of like our brain adding anything onto that mm -hmm. and that it seems to me like the distance from that has created a lot of problems mm-hmm Yes, well, I don't, I don't really know. Um, like I say, I haven't read that book, and I don't know Noah Harari's uh, uh, point of view. But, but what you're saying is, uh, yes, it would not be uh, too much to, to think that uh, basically... Uh, human beings are just the scourge of the earth. You know? It would have been better if we would have stayed like nice creatures without speaking and then writing and then making all this stuff. We should have just shut up in the very beginning. And, uh, and, and no wonder we're doomed. It's like totally inevitable. And there's no way out of it. That would be, I think, a totally reasonable way to look at things. <laughs> it would be. I mean, it's quite cogent, really. Um, but the thing about it is that this is us. It's you. You can't escape. And, and I think that uh, we have to love ourselves as we are. And even if uh, what we are is like some kind of like evolutionary wrong turn, you know. <laughs> Even so, uh, we have to uh, love ourselves and love one another and we have to uh, make the best effort that we can to make this to be a good thing, to be human. Even if it's true that it isn't a good thing and it will never be a good thing, still, it will be a beautiful attempt anyway to try to make it be a good thing, even if we fail. And I don't know what other choice we have because if we were to say it's just awful being human and I hate human beings and I hate myself and I'm not going to work tomorrow. That's, we can't do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's something um, about the use of imagination. Like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that I actually can, I do believe in love and I see it when the plant grows and I feel yeah. it in contact with people and I see it, all these people showing up here and you teaching. And But it's like, 
I don't need much imagination for that. It seems like to me right now, maybe I'm, maybe tomorrow morning I'll wake up and say, oh my God, well, what was I saying? Yeah. That's all imagination. But I'm not sure. It's something about realness versus imagination. Oh, oh I see. Not like Oh, uh, I understand. Or, Sorry, I or, misunderstood. Or denying yeah, yeah. our history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I see. I, I understand. You're, you're, you're talking about the word imagination and the concept of imagination. Or something about it is say. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, see. something. I see. Is. So, right. Well, uh, yes. Uh, well, now we have a problem with words. Because uh, there is no like exact definition of imagination. It's one of those words like justice that you know different people will hold those words in a different way. So it sounds like when I was talking about imagination, you were hearing something that I didn't quite mean. Uh, but I don't blame you because the word is has its own connotations, and you had I, you you I didn't invent the word imagination, and you never heard it before I mentioned it. You heard it a lot before, and you had all kinds of ideas about it, and those ideas persist. Even though what I'm, try, I'm trying to, and I suppose in the end, what I'm trying to do is reconfigure and redefine imagination in a way, because I'm saying that imagination is re- the real. I'm saying that imagination is not not real. Imagination is real. For us to be real people in a real world, really appreciating the things we touch and see with our eyes, takes imagination. That's what I'm saying. So. Um, you're, you seem to be equating imagination with conceptual mind yeah. and, and sort of saying, well, conceptual mind is, is a problem. And it's not that imagination, as I'm using it, is not also partly conceptual mind, but it's, anyway, we're having, I think we're, we're having trouble with our terms is all. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. I, anyway. That's, I don't feel... Anyway, thank you for bringing up that, because I, I, I think I actually have that book in my house that I haven't read it. I'll, maybe I'll have to read it now. I've, I've always, I've enjoyed his many presentations that I've seen of him. He's very smart and has a way of uh, summarizing lots of big pieces of information in a simple way, so he's very good to read, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Yes. I I seem to come to ideas like either or, yes, but, waiting for Godot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we are so in love with ourselves as humans, uh, and yet, human, we're just one type of being. And right. we may very well pass. Yes. Um, I think that if we're really in love with, with the divine, with life, then we are in love with life. Um, not necessarily the human form, but all life. But we are so enamored with our identity and with our ego that we just can't forget ourselves. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think what we're doing, uh, all the bad stuff we're doing to the planet, we are doing to ourselves. Because we will not destroy the earth. We will change the earth. The earth has been changed around a million times. The earth knows exactly how to handle that and will. And we will not kill life. We will not. We might kill ourselves in many forms of life 
And, and, and all those forms of life, since we grew up with them, we will grieve over every one of them. But we will not kill life, and we will not kill the earth. That's right. Because, and, yeah. because our, our life, our mind, our imagination has to do with some, the, the big mystery. Yeah. Uh, we'll never solve the big mystery, but it's always there. It's always expanding. Yes. And we'll pass on to some other that's right. Their form of life or consciousness. That's right. And, or... and the earth was never going to last forever anyway. Well, that's a beautiful uh, comment for, for ending. And let's do a brief meditation because it's time to go. We'll do a brief meditation. So, let's ground our meditation in our, in our bodies Let's really appreciate our body. You can feel your butt on the chair or if you're on a cushion, on the cushion. And feel how the weight of your body grounds you on the chair. You're not floating up off the chair because the earth loves you and is attracted to you and holds you down. And feel, feel that. That's actually the feeling of your body is the feeling of its attraction to the earth and the earth's attraction to it through gravity. Feel that in your body. Relax your shoulders and arms. Feel that within yourself that lifts you up let yourself be lifted up, literally, from within. Opened up and lifted up. Especially in the upper body. So you can feel that you're sitting in the dignified, upright posture of a human being. Beautiful human posture. Now, just notice your breathing. Breathing in, notice your breathing in. Reinvigorating your life force. And when you breathe out, notice your breathing out, bringing peace to your body, letting go of all the stuff that you don't need anymore. And be with the breath, the beautiful rhythm. This rhythm of in and out, coming, going, inside and outside, taking in the air from outside. Sending it back.
Now notice your mind, your emotions. If there's anything, however subtle, that you may be a thought coming or a feeling that you have, feeling of comfort, discomfort, well-being, happiness, or maybe just, just the feeling of being here. Just notice that feeling or any thought or sensation that comes into your mind. So you know these things, you're aware of your breath, of your body, of your thoughts, of your feelings. You know in some way that you maybe can do or maybe can't do. Notice that There's an awareness itself, a field of awareness within which these things are illuminated so that you can know them. So be aware of the awareness itself. Almost as space or as light. And this awareness itself is not you and not yours. It's not in a particular place. But it's thanks to this awareness that you are alive and that you can know you're alive and that you can feel your life. It's awesome. Unknowable somehow. But we can appreciate it. Be grateful to it.
And no matter what happens, this awareness continues. Welcoming everything. I want to thank all of you for coming and I want to thank Spirit Rock for inviting me and all the workers and volunteers who made it possible and setting up the chairs and everything involved and I want to thank everybody who made it possible that we have this place. What a treasure, right? We're lucky. So take care of everybody and good luck with everything. Let's, let's all go forward and be the best bodhisattvas ever. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.